Welcome to the latest ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Seb Lozier, and as the dust settles on the season-ending NITO ATP Finals, this time we bring you some more of our favourite interviews from our time in London. I'm here with Sebastian Grosjean, who is a veteran of a former ATP Finals. That was back in 2001. It was due to be in Sao Paulo, but with about three months to go, they switched it to Sydney. What do you remember about that? Oh, he was amazing. Um, I had to win in Bercy to qualify for Sydney. And it was great because just after we played the Davis Cup final in Melbourne. So I spent almost a month in Australia. So it was, uh, it was a great memories. Um, and uh, I did well. I mean, uh, I lost in the final against Leighton. But uh, it was the only time, you know, I played the, the finals. And uh, it was a great experience. You had a very good year in Australia that year because you were a semi-finalist at the Australian Open. You uh, won the Davis Cup. You uh, played in the... Well, it was called the Tennis Masters Cup, but it was the forerunner of the ATP Finals. So, a good place for you. Yes, yeah, always good to be in Australia. It's a long way uh, when you you go from everywhere, from Europe or even from the US. But uh, you know, Australia they have like a huge history of tennis. Uh, I always did well also at the Australian Open. Uh, a lot of uh, tennis fan over there, so I love to play there. And uh, yes, I had some good results. Yeah. I mean, you were living in Florida at the time, I think. So did you go home after Davis Cup for Christmas and then come back for the 2002 Australian Open? Exactly, yeah. yeah. After, after the Melbourne, I, I went, back, went back home, spent uh, a few weeks because uh, at that time, Davis Cup final was uh, a week. Uh, we had a week in between the, the finals and the Davis Cup final. So it was a longer season. But uh, yes, I did uh, spend uh, Christmas at home. Now, for people from cold countries, it's understandable that they moved to Florida. Good practice facilities, good weather. But you're from the south of France. Beautiful weather, beautiful countryside, the, the, the Provence. Yes. Why did you go to Florida? Yeah, I was born in Marseille, even if I grew up in the French Alps. Uh, you know, the, the base for a French tennis player uh, was Paris. And, you know, Paris in winter is cold, playing indoors. And uh, I think I had a few, a few friends who li- used to live in Florida. And I decided with my wife to, to move there. Uh, it was better for tennis to play outside. And it was easier also and much better to raise kids over there. So uh, we moved to Florida. It was, it was perfect for the, the, you know, the month of March for you know, like playing in the, in the US. And uh, so we were going back and forth with friends. Was it also to escape some of the pressure? Because you were the top French player at the time and France has a great tennis history. And I know there was an awful lot of pressure on you to perform at that time. No, it wasn't a reason of, uh, of pressure. It was more for, for my tennis, uh, for traveling. Uh, I mean, Florida is uh, the, the place to be huh, as a tennis player. Uh, so many uh, players training in Florida back then. Uh, so it was, it was a professional choice, yeah. You're working now with Richard Gasquet. How we all love watching Gasquet yeah. play. How good can he be still? He's still got a couple of years left in him. But what can, what can we reasonably expect? Yeah, I think he has a few uh, good years in front of him. Uh, when you see all the players over 30, you know, at the top of the of the ranking, I think uh, even tonight we're going to have uh, Roger, 
you know, he's still a Grand Slam winner in 2018. Uh, he's 37 years old, so I think he has a good years. He has to be in, in good shape physically to avoid a few injuries. But uh, no, it's. Uh, I think he has. Uh, he can do some good results in the big events. He still got uh, his game and he had the desire to play. What so. are you trying to do for him most? Uh, no, he has to stay in shape. He has to stay in shape. If he is good physically, he will be able to compete well. Uh, when he, you love the game, you want to play for years and years. And uh, you know, Davis Cup, they, I think you know, playing well in a slam, you can uh, still do like a last eight, maybe in a, in a in a slam, and maybe to come back around uh, not too far from ten. Now then, you are one of the smaller guys on the circuit. Oh, yeah. Are you 173? <laughs> 174, yeah. 174, okay. Is there still room for the smaller guys on the tour these days? Kei Nishikori. So Kei is, uh, you know, he's back in a, in, a, in a top 10. He had a tough beginning of the year because uh, of injury. So, yes, I think you can still play well even if you, you don't, you're not like over 190. Even if the average uh, height this year is uh, 193, I heard here in, uh, at the Masters. That's the average? Yeah, because you have John Isner, Kevin Anderson, Marin Silic. Uh, so you have a lot of guys, you know, like uh, close to two meters. Uh, so it is, but I think, you know, everybody can play. It doesn't matter. And there's one question I must ask you. Going back to your golden year of 2001, when you qualified for the ATP finals. In the quarterfinals of the French Open, you were playing Agassi and you lost the first set 6-1 and at that moment Bill Clinton walked in to the stadium and Agassi always said afterwards he didn't know that. Did you know that? Did you think that made a difference to the match? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I was really nervous be before the, the beginning of the match because it was a quarter-final at the French, he was under Agassi and I started the match like that. And then, uh, you know, uh, little by little I was feeling much better uh, of course, I saw Billy in a presidential uh, box. We had like a few minutes, you know, in between the changeover. But, uh, you know, I was focusing on my game, you know, like try to relax. And, um, you know what, that's a shame he didn't come for the semis. Because <laughs> well, the moment he walked in, you won three straight sets? Yeah, I won uh, three sets. Uh, but I think it was, you know, I was feeling more relaxed. You know, I played uh, Andre a few times after as well. So it was always tough to play against uh, Andre Agassi, but uh, you know we played uh, against—I mean, in front of so many presidents of countries as well. So it wasn't the first time. We've been talking to a lot of people who have been uh, playing at this tournament over the years, and I have one in front of me now. Tim Henman played in the 1990s, and you had one of the most remarkable stories of playing when uh, what you something like ranked in the teens, and you got a late call one year. <laughs> yeah, I did. That's right. I was. Um, I was playing in national championships actually which was the same week and I think I'd finished sort of 15 in the world and at that time they didn't take a reserve um, for the World Tour Finals so the top eight were there and somebody got injured and looking sort of down the list of uh, where the next players were geographically um, it was pretty difficult to uh, to get to Hanover it was in, in uh, 1997 so um, amazingly I played the semi-finals of, uh, of the national championships beat Jamie Delgado in the morning and then flew to, to Hanover um, had a quick hit on the court and played Yevgeny Kofelnikov on Saturday evening uh, I beat him and then flew back to the national championships in Telford on the Sunday and, and beat Greg Rosetsky in the final. So it was a busy weekend. 
Because you played Rosetsky in the finals one year. Was that also Hanover? Yeah, he. I think Greg got in as a, as a reserve and, and uh, unfortunately beat me in, in that match. But uh, I was lucky enough to be through to the semi-finals. I mean, I suppose that was, that was the days before mobile phones and therefore it was actually quite difficult to contact people. So if you were at a tournament, you were a lot easier to find. I don't think it was necessarily that. I think it was the, the fact that uh, some of the players were in South America, some of the players were in Australia, some were in the West Coast of America. So for those players actually to get to Hanover um, was going to be very, very difficult, whereas I was uh, you know, hour and a half flight away. So I was lucky that I was able to, to take advantage of that. And, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I played twice in Hanover. And then 2004, I played in, in Houston, which was, uh, again, a very different experience. Yeah, let's just talk about the different venues because Hanover was basically a, an empty room in an exhibition hall where they'd built a stadium from scratch. Houston was out of doors. And here at the O2, it's uh, like a ready-made pop music venue that's turned into a tennis arena. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think it's safe to say I, I know where I would have liked to have played, and that's certainly in London, not only for, uh, you know, this being, um, you know, a home match, but uh, it's an incredible stadium at the O2. We've had amazing attendances over the years and, and um, no different this year. Now you're involved with Wimbledon these, these these days. In the early days of this tournament, Wimbledon's logo was on it as a, as a partner. Is the relationship less formal now? What, what is the relationship between this tournament and Wimbledon? No, no different to the, as, as it always has been. Um, uh, I would say Wimbledon is a, a supporting partner and, and uh, um, I, I think it's great that this event is so different to, to Wimbledon. Obviously, the history and tradition, the, the green grass and the predominantly white clothing is, is Wimbledon's way. But this is, uh, you know, it's more about the, you know, the music and the lights and, and being an indoor venue. But uh, they're both great events. And it's going to be interesting to see where this uh, event goes in a couple of years, whether it stays in, in London or, or moves again around the world. And as... Uh, the All England Tennis Club, would Wimbledon have any say in that or is that purely an ATP decision? No, I, th I think it's much more to do with the ATP feel. It will be to do with the offers they get um, from other cities around the world. Obviously, the, the finances, the sponsorship that go with that and the potential attendances. So uh, I think there's lots of people that are going to um, you know, wait and see what happens. Tim Henman, thanks very much for being with us. Thanks, Chris. I'm upstairs now in the players' lounge with one half of the Lodra Santoro group, Fabrice Santoro. Um, first of all, Fabrice, you tell me, how was that to have a, a group named after you at the Nito ATP Finals? Well, I mean, clearly an honour, I mean, to see my name in one of the group. And uh, actually, the ATP didn't ask me before, so it was a, a good surprise when I came here and, and, and saw that. You must have so many memories of that tournament. When was it? 2005, you were saying? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I was lucky actually to play a couple of um, Masters and uh, I played in Hartford the first year and then I played twice in Houston and finally won in Shanghai in 2005. And, um, well, I mean, you know, when, when you are arriving at this period of the year and you're able to play this competition, that means you had a good year. So that's why I mean I, ke I, I keep in mind some some great memories of those three city where I played the, the competition. And the here and now, your coach now of Pierre Hugerbert. Um, first of all, how's Pierre Hugues enjoying this? I mean, he's been here before, but you're his singles coach, of course. So before we get on to the doubles, how, how, what kind of progress is he making? Um, I'm working with Pierre Hugues since um, a bit more than a year, and uh, I mean, first of all, is uh, He's a, he's a very special person, on and out of the court. He's a great, great guy and uh, smart. And uh, there's a lot of respect between him and me. And uh, and of course we try together. I'm trying to make him uh, a better player. 
Um, there's a lot to do, of course, which is a good point. Um, it was 90 in the water like a year and a half ago, and now he's 54, 55. So I'm pretty happy about his, his movement. Um, but hopefully in, in, a, in a year time, his ranking will be much better. Um, as I just said, I mean, there's a lot to do, and uh, it's a very positive to see that you can improve so many parts of his game. And um, so we work on every, every day to, to, to make him a better player. He's such a wonderful player when he goes forward, isn't he? Which, of course, helps, you know, the doubles. He, he's a very, very good doubles player. And it's a great partnership they seem to have, he, him and Nico. They are very good friends out of the court. And it helps when they, have a, they are in a very in tricky situation on the court during the match. Um, yeah, to talk about... Pierre as a single player, as you said, he's very he's very good when he moves forward, when he when he serve and, and comes to the net, when he hit a big forehand and comes in. But before that, he has to improve uh, his footwork. He has to 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 put the way he's, um, he's on the ground before to hit. And uh, so we work a lot on it on that. And uh, I think he um, that's the main reason was why he's playing better at the moment. He has more um, stability in, in his legs. I just wanted to ask you, you don't get the nickname Le Magicien, uh, the magician for nothing. We're, we're in the middle of a doubles masterclass right now on ATP Tennis Radio. And uh, do you have any tips? What would your tips be for, for young listeners or listeners of any age, really, for, for doubles and really playing well on the doubles court? Um, first of all, uh, I would say that double is a great way to improve your single game because you work on very important point of, of tennis, serve, volley, return. And, and especially you, you walk the volley and the return on a s small, um, small part of the court and where, where you have to be very precise. Um, if you look at the doubles player here in, in London, there's many different kind of games. Uh, some are powerful, some has, uh, have good hands, um, but the only, only um, thing they all have in common is um, to play well in doubles. I think it's very important to have a high, high percentage of first serve. Um, because this is a, the best way to, to arrive at the net in a good situation for volley. It was interesting um, listening earlier, I can't remember who we were talking to, but they were saying that so many doubles pairs now don't play what's, I guess, known as a classic doubles play because the, the, lots, lots of singles players are playing doubles at the back of the court. The game's changed in a way. The game has changed a lot. I mean, uh, even the player who play classic in doubles, they move more than 15, 20 years ago. They... Um, then the the occupation of the court has changed a lot, uh, but still there's a lot to do for the opponent. There's, uh, I mean, many doubles players are very close to the net. There's a bit, a bit of space on the side, but a lot on, on uh, when you go up for a lob. So um, I'm trying to help uh, Pierre and, and and a bit Nico, of course, uh, uh, to, to to be better players. And you're juggling this with also working here with being sports for TV how do you how do you juggle all these things how do you make it all work I'm a very happy man when I'm busy that's why uh, I'm doing many things coaching TV uh, post-match interview on court in Roland Garros and also I'm playing a couple of exhibition that's all my occupation in tennis it's very you know it's I think it's very important for me and I feel very lucky to be able to have like three different jobs in, in, in the same day Fabrice, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time and good luck this afternoon. Thank you.
I've got in front of me somebody who played in this event five times, Nikolai Davidenko, and won the first one here back in 2009. Nikolai, welcome to ATP Tennis Radio. Good memories of 2009? Yes, for sure. I always will remember my win here in 2009, and uh, so many changing now is uh, happening like eight, nine years is changing uh, really a lot. I saw like so many buildings to rebuild here, and then apartments and hotels and uh, yes, London is upgrading now. It's always upgrading. I mean, you played in 2005, got to the semi-finals. You were beaten finalist by Djokovic in 2008. Did you get the feeling at the end of 2008, this is destined never to happen or did you keep the faith? No, no. If you play just Masters, you don't think about or you win or you lost. You just play match by match and you don't know what will be happening. I lost against Djokovic, but I play very well and uh, I know I have chance uh, to win the last two matches and see what will happen later. But uh, after, I really, uh, for me, it's a second match, uh, Soderling, and uh, I think last match, Soderling. But anyway, Nadal was for me easy at this moment, and uh, was was important uh, Soderling match. And I won, and uh, really, just come again, Federer semis, uh, I was thinking, no, and, uh, really again. 12, 11, 12, 13 times I lost uh, non-stop and I don't know if I can beat him again. And this, I think London give me a chance to improve and just give my mind I can beat Feather. You were very much the follow-on player after the generation of Kafelnikov and Safin. Did you feel a lot of pressure given that they broke new ground for Russian tennis? Uh, for sure it's not pressure. It's for sure it's like uh, give me... Uh, a little bit um, just change Russia have some good player and for sure I was like so many years number one in Russia and like uh, for sure I support Russia support me and uh, for sure I need to be play Davis Cup for Russia because the press wanna see me and like uh, speak with me and uh, yeah I have a little bit pressure for uh, Russian uh, Federation but anyway uh, we have so many tournaments, you know, and like uh, play everywhere and uh, feeling like, I don't know, Russia for me was not so like uh, get so much. You're one of four players who's yeah. won this tournament without ever winning a Grand Slam. Can you compare the pressure of mm -hmm. this one as against a Grand Slam? How I say Grand Slam is five set matches. And uh, for me it was tough, I think, uh, playing this. I uh, was physically... Uh, fit tennis was good, but uh, sometimes I cannot uh, win. Um, I, I was so tired, or I cannot win match, you know, in five sets. And always uh, Federer stopped me, or quarters or semis. And I was so hating, like, why I was playing against Federer? Why not in the final? Maybe I have more chance. And happening always in semis. What do you make of the new generation of Russian players? Because there are three coming up at once. Rublev, uh, Medvedev, and the top Russian at the moment, mm -hmm. Khachanov. Yeah. Okay, uh, I was surprising really before I, in the uh, Russian press I tell to Khachanov to come to top 10, need maybe, no, we'll see, need more matches, need more, get result, better result. And then he won uh, Kremlin Cup, he won Paris Bercy and now he's number 11, but not top 10 yet. And we'll see now how it will be start Australia Open if we can get chance to come top 10. This is the most difficult, not coming top 10, just to hold to be there. How me, it was five years to be in top five, it's not so easy, it's really big pressure and need to defend the points, need to defend the tournaments and uh, it's uh, really not easy. 
Have you spoken to Hachanov? He's been here this week. Or mm -hmm. how close are you to any of these top three Russians? Uh, you know, like uh, I know these guys. I was uh, last uh, support was by Davis Cup. I meet these guys. I just speak much more. Start to coaching these guys at the at the Davis Cup. But uh, speak with Hachanov, speak with Medvedev, Rublev, and uh, these guys, you know, young and really smart. And uh, I hope, you know, we have a new generation of the young players in Russia, and I hope these guys can come in and play, be in top 10, and be, you know, maybe 10 more years will be support Russia and, uh, you know, be for us, you know, the, like, say, we, like say we will be fan, you know, for these guys. Finally, we've obviously it's the end of the year. Some players are retiring. How did you make the transition from being a top name on the tour to being off the tour? And what are you doing with yourself now? Uh, for sure, after I didn't, I don't want to see tennis. I, I really, I was so tired to thinking. And I sometimes I see result. Who will be in the final? Feder Djokovic, Nadal. Feder Djokovic and I say, okay, tennis it didn't change them so much. And again, the same guys. Like, see, what's happened with tennis? I was thinking, like, when I was retired, okay, Feder is the same age, but look, come on, he's like playing against Samis here. Like, I'm um, still top five, and I, I was surprising. Maybe it's, uh, in the moment, this tennis is the same, not so much changing. Maybe young, maybe in the future, maybe we'll see what's happened in a couple more years. Who will be number one? If it's uh, Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer retiring, it will be interesting tennis because it's really completely different player. And what's happened with tennis? I'm with David Nalbandian, who was a participant three times. It's amazing, three participations, and you played Roger Federer four times. <laughs> yeah, that looks like strange, right? And he's still playing. <laughs> so no, it's good. We have a very good memories of uh, this tournament. I played um, in two different uh, places, Houston once and then Shanghai. I never played here, um, but I see the facilities, the installation, and a uh, great. The one we remember is the first one in Shanghai, 2005, where you played Federer in your first match yeah. and you played him in your last match in the exactly. most amazing five sets final. What do you remember of that? Exactly. First and last one. And yeah, it was a great week. Um, I came like a uh, lucky loser because um, I think on the road it pulled out and I arrived there and uh, feeling was good. I lost in three sets but feeling was great and uh, I say okay I have, I have a little bit of chance here and during the week I start feeling better and better and in the end we play again. We have a lot of history against each other from juniors and I think it was a, a great match. I remember it was about two and a quarter hours for the first two sets, and you were two sets to love down, and yet you came back to win in five. What do you <laughs> What do you remember about the feeling at two sets down? Well, feeling was like I was losing two, two sets to love down, but in the end was for just a few points because it was two tiebreakers. And I say, all right, I'm, I'm still here. I can be winning two sets to love, but I'm losing two sets to love. But I'm, I'm still on the match. I have chance. I'm keep fighting. I mean, our our style always was fighting. So keep fighting. I think Roger fall down a little bit on the level, and I push harder. And then in the fifth set was was tie, and we get to the tiebreaker again.
but it was four love to you, and then he came back to five four thirty love. Yeah. And you were two points from losing. Do you remember what you thought then? No, not exactly. Because <laughs> I, I remember what you said. You what said, I cannot lose this match. No, I can lose this match uh, when we um, when we get to the tiebreak. Because I say, I'm losing the first two tiebreakers. I'm not have to lose this one. And it's the more important one is the last one. If I, if I prefer to lose, I prefer in the third set. We don't have to run two more hours and be in the fifth set. Um, so when, I, when we get to the tiebreaker, to the final tiebreaker, I say, okay, I'm already here. I can't lose this one. It was an amazing time for Argentinian tennis. There was you, there was Correa, there was Zabaleta, Caleri, and Gaudio won the French yeah. Open. Why do you think there was such a surge of Argentinian players at that time? I think because we, of course, all of us has a very, very good level, very high level. But I think they, they didn't believe in themselves yet. So since one start, everybody came came behind the others and everybody started believing in the, in themselves and in the levels and we get a great generation so was your run to the wimbledon final in 2002 the achievement that allowed others to believe in themselves well it could be yeah yeah because after that everybody start winning or start um being on the on the finals on the, on the tournament every tournament or every week you should have any Argentina or any South American around and I think it could be possible yeah and what are you doing with yourself these days well family growing up the children's are so good so happy and running some business that I do in Argentina my foundation as well so I'm quite busy at home you were always into cars is that yeah. still a hobby of yours yeah it's a hobby I always say that when I had time, I will do it. And right after I finished, I started racing. I'm doing the national championship in Argentina. It's one a month, one week and a month. So it's not much, but it's good. And finally, we're obviously very disappointed that Juan Martin Del Potro isn't here. Do you think he is fit enough and has the potential to be a real factor next year? I hope so. I mean, he has a very good season, a very bad lucky on the, on the last uh, injury. That, that put, put him uh, many, many weeks out of the tournament. That's, that's bad for, for him, of course, and for all the national tennis. But I think if he feels good, he has a very good potential. I mean, he's a very dangerous player. He can beat uh, anyone, and he gets back uh, good. Uh, he can be here next year. Well, I'm delighted to be joined on ATP Tennis Radio by Louis Caillet, who's coach to Jamie Murray and Bruno Suarez. Louis, it's a very successful partnership. What have you been able to do in terms of improving Jamie's and Bruno's games and their joint games? OK, first of all, I'm not the only coach. There's Alan McDonald, travel all the time with him, and uh, with uh, Jamie and Bruno, and Hugo also, who is the coach of um, Bruno when he's uh, in Brazil. Uh, what I try to do is to just, uh, I always focus on two aspects. The performer, which is the head, heart and legs, which is like if you go on the court without great focus, without desire, without energy, whatever you do tactically and technically is useless. So we get that straight out to perform. And then we develop like specific doubles uh, patterns and mostly to set up each other. So two good players playing together is never as good as a team. So which serve, what do you expect, and uh, 
with the second shot and what the partner does. So there's a lot of uh, team play patterns that to maximize their partnership. So can you put a percentage on how much of your work is on the actual play, the strokes of each individual man, and how much of it is actually working on teamwork? Uh, what we prepare like for Slam and all this, it's mostly exclusively teamwork. Uh, but I work uh, more with Alan, like uh, with Jamie when he's at home. And this is where we do a lot of the technical work and all this. And uh, Hugo uh, does the technical work for Bruno in Brazil. So when they are together, it's mostly not to do technical stuff, but to do team stuff and positioning. And when you serve there, you should squeeze more what you should do. And, and Bruno, to now you understand, but that Jamie being a lefty, you never played with lefty before. Uh, how, the, how he should adjust to the type of serve Jamie is doing and the timing. So there's a lot of uh, little details about positioning and when you work on the space and positioning, sometimes there's difference between squeezing, cheating, disguising the move, the timing of that. And uh, when we pay attention to details, it takes a lot of work to master these elements. We should make the point that cheating is not doing something that's against the no, no. rules. It's just it's, it's poaching. And, uh, yeah, but what, what's squeezing? Squeezing is just like if uh, in doubles, if, I hope you have good imagination, those who are listening. If on do side, if Jamie do a jam forehand, serve jam forehand, it's very difficult for the, that person to return down the line. So Bruno has to uh, move up, squeezing, squeeze the middle. So... And then not to follow like what they don't teach you in Harvard, for example. So on paper, you have to be somewhere, but because of the reality and the difficulty of the shot to do something else, you squeeze the middle, you reinforce more one side. Thank you very much for that. If you think back 30 years to the 80s, a lot of the doubles players didn't have coaches. In fact, the doubles players, if they had a coach, it's because they were a singles player. Yeah. What have you seen as the real developments, the evolution of the doubles game over the last 10, 15 years? Uh, first, I'm a doubles coach since 87. I started with the Canadian team. Uh, at that time, we were, I think, just two or three coaches for doubles, indeed, because the money is not big. So now the money has been a bit better, so the doubles players can afford the coaches. Uh, but at the beginning, it was mostly for that. It was not enough money for doubles players to afford a coach. Now the change is now 40% of the doubles players now don't serve in volley. So 40 of the top 100, so that's huge. Because 15 years ago, if someone would not serve in volley, he would say, I play doubles, but I don't play proper doubles. I stay back on my serve. And they will kind of feel kind of inferior to not serve in volley or to be both back on returns. Now they don't feel like this. Like if uh, Cal Edmund said, do you play doubles? Say, yeah, I play doubles, serve, stay back, whack my forehand. So they see that as very, very uh, natural and normal. So that's much more different game styles than in the time where I started 30 years ago. And is that the evolution of strokes and technology or is that the evolution of thinking? I mean, I have in mind uh, uh, an image from my teenage years watching Tracy Austin play doubles on a clay court. She had one of the softest serves in her era and yet she would go in behind every serve, even second serve. She would volley behind that. Why has that changed? Uh, it has changed uh, first because many years ago they opened the rules with sudden death and uh, to, they wanted to have more singles players playing doubles. Now, these singles players have moved from a generation now that everyone has a big serve, almost in big forehand. So they realize that if they serve and the return doesn't come very hard when it's a big first serve and they walk their forehand, that it may be better than making a volley and then exposing yourself at the net. So they feel very comfortable to serve big and then follow that shot with a big forehand. 
and and that become like a reality on the tour now. So just that the power of the strokes now uh, allow people to stay back to be successful. So what's that done to the position of the returner? Uh, the, the returner now, it was almost 30 years ago, always one up, one back. Now they're sometimes both back. And in my time, like t again, 30 years ago when I started, the lefty was always playing the ad side uh, because it was one up, one back, so the second shot was always on their forehand. And now you will see them uh, often both back and the lefty play often on deuce side. So if the lefty is on deuce side and the righty on the outside, then you have two forehands in the middle. So the middle is very, very strong and you have two people who can hit their forehand very hard. So yeah, it, it has changed. It has changed a lot. Because a lot of people will be listening to ATP Tennis Radio and who watch ten uh, tennis on television, they'll play themselves. And most <clears> amateur <throat> players will play more doubles than singles, especially if they're a member of a club. What can the amateur player learn from watching players of the level of the top pairs on the ATP Tour? Uh, first, uh, I would almost say coaches learn that you should not force any member, any recreational player to serve in volley because 40% of the men don't do and 95% of the women don't do. So don't play with preconceived notions that you have to serve in volley. So if you're a member, if you don't want to serve in volley, it's fine, serve and stay back. You want to be bowled back on the return because your partner doesn't return very well and people volley hard at you, it's fine, play bowled back. A lot of top players do that. So what you have to learn is that now more options are open. There's not just a stereotype way of playing doubles, which is serve and volley and when you return chip and charge. Uh, so you, there's a lot of things that are possible. There was a time like in early 2000 where it was only power doubles. Now people like Jamie brought back the lobs, the chip, angle, the chip and charge, so that everything is possible. So just go there, enjoy, play the way you want and don't feel bad or feel awkward. Whatever you will do is acceptable now. So if you've got a, a left hand or maybe a right hander who plays with a left hander and the left hander insists they must play on the left court um, because they're the left hander, you would actually say, no, 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 um, whatever works is, is okay for you. Uh, yes, and I would maybe even recommend now to play the deuce side because one of the toughest shots in the game is the deuce side player, the back end inside out to avoid the net player. So if you have a good, if you serve a good tee and the guy on the deuce side has it on his back end and try to avoid the net player is very, very difficult. So it's almost better to have a forehand in the middle to return well. And if the person served the left tee wide, like on Jamie, then he can lob. Uh, because the service right, he will have to move across on a back end smash, which is not easy. And they have a bit more angle to avoid the net player. So yes, but if you want to play on that side, it's fine also. If there was one piece of advice you would give amateur doubles players without seeing them, without knowing how they play, what would it be? A first play as a team, enjoy playing with your partner. Because the first rule is find the best players available. That's always been the rule. So you have to be that best partner that people want to play with. And it's not just about the level. It's about the enjoyment of playing with someone. So uh, praise them when they, your partner do a good shot. When he struggle, go toward him. Like keep him focused. Keep him positive. And if you can uh, get the best of your partner, then it makes you the partner that everybody wants to play with. Is the high fives important? High five, low five, any five, yes. You have to uh, be a team and, uh, yeah, if you stick together, like the synergy, it makes one plus one equal three and I really believe in that. 
Finally, before you go, I must ask you something. We have a member of our commentary team, Naomi Cavaday. I gather you're working with her brother, Nick. What's that about? Uh, Nick uh, is a great person. He will be now in charge of the National Academy and I will be uh, lucky enough to be the performance advisor. So we'll work together into developing the, the best juniors in the country. This is national for Great Britain, yes? Yeah, National Academy yeah, for Great Britain. Well, good luck with that and uh, keep up your enthusiasm. It's great to have you on ATP Tennis Radio. It's Louis Kaye. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. Our thanks to everyone who joined us throughout the week and throughout the season. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's podcast recorded straight after the final at the O2, you'll want to do that. There are interviews with the champion Sasha Zverev's backroom staff, with Borna Chorich, Mats Vilander, and many, many more. And if interviews is what you're interested in, check out the ATP Tennis Radio exclusives channel on TuneIn because there are many more in there. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Remember, you can leave us a review on iTunes and next week we start our look back on the very best of 2018. You can find our channel, which is always on 24-7 on TuneIn on atpworldtour.com. Just click on the listen button at the top of the page and even on your Amazon Echo. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you can always listen to ATP Tennis Radio.